DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year-round. I'm always excited about our guests, but today I'm particularly happy about recording this episode with Rene Gittins, Executive Director of the International Game Developers Association and Creative Director as well as CEO at Stumbling Cat. Hey, Rene, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to do this. So, uh, I mean, most people that are familiar with the industry and uh, most of our DEF COM, uh, you know, audience is, uh, will probably know you, but still, you know, it would be nice to uh, get a little bit of a background. Uh, like, tell us a bit about yourself and, uh, you know, what your current roles are, how you got to IGDA uh, to kick this off. Yeah, of course. Uh, so as you noted, I'm the executive director of the IGDA, the International Game Developers Association. We're a nonprofit professional association that supports and empowers game developers around the world in achieving fulfilling and sustainable careers. And as the executive director, I help lead the pursuit of that mission. On the uh, on the side, I run my own studio, Stumbling Cat, and we're making a game called Potions of Curious Tale, which is an adventure crafting game that features a young witch who's recently discovered her ability to brew magical potions. And on that project, I act as uh, the creative director and as well as the main programmer uh, <laughs> and the main designer. So I, I basically do everything but the art and the audio, uh, but I get a little help with some things like the writing. So you get some friends on board that help you with the audio and art. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Though uh, I, all of them are contractors, so I, I do pay uh, my team for their contributions. <laughs> I wasn't implying you weren't. But it, it <laughs> well, just... I think that's important, right? Like... <laughs> no, abs absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely important to mention it. I just want to make sure that nobody thought I was thinking you didn't pay him uh, for that. But uh, you know, obviously, since you had so many different roles uh, on your your team there, uh, you know, I, I thought it, you probably looked for other people uh, that also contributed in many different uh, different areas kind of uh, yeah uh, absolutely to, to keep things uh, manageable so um th thanks for the quick intro i mean obviously uh you know most people are familiar with the with the igda and we're gonna cover uh different areas of uh, the work that you do at igda what what igda does in general for the industry um but maybe let's start with a very easy question to, <laughs> to in okay, the beginning cool. Uh, what's the state of the industry from your point of view and how do we move forward? <laughs> of course, I was just kidding with the easy question. I know it's uh, it's tricky, but, um, you know, uh, obviously there's a lot going on in the industry right now and uh, in your role, uh, I think you're involved in many of this discussion. So I was just, um, you know, uh, curious what you think about uh, what the biggest uh, challenges of our industry are at the moment and, uh, you know, lead us through there a little bit. And then uh, I promise I'm going to ask some, some detailed questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I think taking a step back from the industry itself, we have to recognize that the world is in a particularly turbulent yeah. state right now. Uh, not only is there a global pandemic, uh, but we've been having issues that have upset society uh, from wildfires and climate change to political unrest to a, a recession and all of that does impact the game industry currently now when it comes to the game industry itself you know recently there was the um another movement uh with women and other people coming forward with stories of harassment that they've received within the industry and overall there have been a lot of concerns when it comes to reasonable work hours, compensation, treatment of employees and contractors within the industry, and diversity and inclusion. And I think that we as game developers, we as the game development industry, have a lot of areas where we can improve. But I think that we've been making improvements. You know, the IGDA's Developer Satisfaction Survey, the most recent one for 2019, showed that the number of women identifying people within the game industry had increased to 24% from the previous 21 or 22%. So it shows that we're making some progress, but we're certainly not perfect. Similarly, we've seen that 
71% of companies have some type of anti-harassment policy and 65% have an anti-discrimination policy. But most developers don't feel like those policies are actually being adequately enforced. So I think we're making steps in the right direction. And these are just really important conversations that we need to continue to have so we can continue this improvement. So are companies at the moment actively reaching out to you at uh, you personally or IGDA in general in the chapters uh, to get help with those topics? Or is it more that you have to be proactive about, you know, approaching uh, companies or industry segments to uh, raise awareness for those topics? Well, what's your uh, what do you think about, uh, you know, where this mostly comes from? I think it's some of both. So the IGDA provides a lot of free resources, a lot of webinars, a lot of papers, and we see those being widely accessed and used. We also do have companies come to us with specific questions. We also have a lot of events come to us who are looking to promote a diverse range of speakers and developers to help encourage that increase of diversity within the industry itself. Uh, And when it comes to companies reaching out to us, they have lots of different questions. We haven't received quite as many when it comes to diversity and inclusion, but recently uh, one company reached out with questions about our crediting standards and recommendations to ensure that they were properly crediting the members of their team. Mm -hmm. So, so um, when we talk about, let's say, with the with the topic of uh, diversity and inclusion for a moment, because it's it's one that always uh, keeps reappearing, and uh, from my own experience uh, within the European games industry, and particularly here in Germany where I'm based, um, people have challenges defining um, their approach to uh, how to Im- improve handling um, the, the topic, how to uh, build more diverse teams, how to be more inclusive. Um, and uh, they sometimes look at, uh, you know, the scandals that happen in their industry over the past couple of years, and then uh, they're working on, you know, trying to avoid it based on these circumstances, rather than thinking about uh, what can they do as a company to uh, already prevent something like that from happening in the first place. So um, what are your thoughts? As, where do you start with this uh, topic? Are there general uh, recommendations you would give if you want to build a diverse team, if you want to be open to um, uh, people from all kinds of uh, backgrounds to join your team? And how do you, how are you more inviting? Is there anything that you usually give as an advice to people that approach you? Yeah, I would say, I mean, first and foremost is being proactive about diversity and inclusion is the best method. Uh, being reactive to it means that you've already had issues or you've that you've sowed problems within your team that might affect the culture. The IGDA is actually working on a number of resources to help with diversity and inclusion. We just finished a HR policy guidelines, which is a really great place to start because Mm -hmm. it ensures that you have policies that allow people to understand proper workplace behavior, but also the reporting structure for bringing up concerns. And just having those kinds of structures in place allows employees to be confident in their dealings with with uncomfortable situations. They, it allows them to identify, yes, this isn't appropriate and this is what I can do to bring up the issue. And they understand that it is a priority for the company because it has been specifically outlined by the company as a concern. I would also say that you know, proactively looking for diverse hires is a really, really great way to help increase diversity on your team. But you can't just hire diverse people and expect that to be magic, right? Um, You need to make sure that diverse people within your team are also being properly supported, that they're being considered for the same promotions and the same types of growth, and that they have a mentorship and support structure that is tailored to them uh, to make sure that they are feeling like they're getting advice from people who understand their situation and that they have mentors that they can look up to who have backgrounds that are similar to their own. So when we um, talk about hiring um, for a team, um, you brought up the the topic and you say it it starts with that. Um, I often come across people that say like, well, we are trying so hard to build a diverse team. We are um, putting our uh, job specs out there. We're trying to encourage people um, from all different backgrounds to apply. But in the end, we get like the 
the white male in his mid thirties, you know, to be the programmer, whatever it is. So um, we would love to find others, but but how do we do this? And then uh, you know, when you enter a discussion and there's um, other people involved, and and usually it's like, well, you got to think about how you advertise uh, your job and 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 how you talk to people. It starts with like um, the way you phrase things and so on. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Have you come across that problem in in your work as well? And is there anything in particular you would advise um, or would tell our Developers or, or whoever in the games industry wants to hire, what the what, what kind of uh, you know obstacles might be uh, already at that step um, that they should be aware of and how they can avoid um, you know walking into those traps. Yeah, definitely. There's absolutely potential concerns just from the start when it comes to job descriptions and job postings. It's easy to write a description that's going to turn off certain types of applicants or seem less appealing. I know that for a while it was really popular to use language like rock stars and <laughs> yeah. like dedicated. And um, I think that When a developer is looking at those job descriptions, they are looking not only to see if the requirements is suitable for their skill set, uh, but also that the culture that is being sort of hinted to in those job descriptions makes sense for them. And I have seen job descriptions that look like giant red flags and I would never <laughs> apply to despite the position sounding good on the surface. And I think that when it comes to writing those job descriptions, just making sure that you have multiple members of the team look over them is a, a good, you know, a good way to review that process and to help improve. Yeah, I guess if you already have a little bit more diverse team on board, then it uh, makes it easier to write a job description that is also right. appealing to, you know, the next member of the team. And if you don't have a diverse team, I mean, there are, there are places you can go. I, there's an advice channel. Uh, the IGDA has our own Discord. You can go into our Discord, put it in the advice channel and say, hey, yeah. does this job description look good or, or can I have feedback? And we have a really diverse set of developers in there of 2,200 developers in there who are happy to look at that and give their feedback. Yeah, so uh, moving from, from one not-so-easy topic to kind of the next not-so-easy topic, and you already <laughs> brought up harassment in, uh, a, a while ago. I mean, obviously now when I have the chance to talk to you about those topics, I'm, I'm curious on, on you know what your views are on all those points. Uh, unfortunately, the games industry has been shaken up quite a bit in, in recent years um, because of stories of uh, harassment and toxic behavior. Um, so, And it's there's no easy answer, I guess, to uh, how to uh, you know prevent that from happening. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts seeing this and, and seeing, you know, the games industry evolving? Um, you already mentioned in the beginning that we've we've done a few right things and uh, we're moving in a better direction. But um, what do you think? Where are we right now? And how can companies, big or small, deal with that um, and, and try to make sure that, uh, you know, things like these don't happen? Right. Well, I think the fact that we're just having these discussions right now is extremely important. Not only is it important to shine a spotlight on the concerns and to make sure that they are being addressed and that the abusers and toxic people within the industry are being properly handled and dealt with, but it's also good to know that these people who have suffered are feeling empowered to come forward. I think that one of the reasons why it wasn't widely talked about before is because it was potentially a career ender to bring up any types of those concerns. And that's not the case anymore. There's better support networks. There's better understanding of the problems within the industry and that you are not a problematic person merely for bringing up something yeah. horrific that you've had experienced before. What, what, what do you think has changed in terms of that people feel less vulnerable maybe they still feel as vulnerable as before but uh they, they feel like they can uh, open up a little uh, more is it, you mentioned the support network um are there particular things that uh that changed is it the discussion that you mentioned the the open discussion in the industry that that makes people say like well it happened to others so i might as well say it happened to me as well is it mainly that or are there other factors that you think are important 
I think that the open discussion is very important and, and a big part of it. Uh, I know that, you know, we're mostly thinking about the set of people that came forward this last month, but we have to remember that 11 months ago, also a, a group came forward and, and had a, a lot of discussions and, um, you know, that was a, a very emotional time where a lot of people came forward with their stories as well. And so I think that with each round of this movement of, of people coming forward to share their stories, it brings attention to the problems, allows people to help put in networks and support to support both the people who have been affected and to give those companies a way to properly deal with these types of concerns. And then more people can think about what's happened to them and, and decide that it is appropriate and safe for them to come forward as well. Yeah. So from your point of view, is it um, more affecting smaller or bigger studios or both equally? Um, is there any, any insight you have? I think, I don't, I can't say if it's affecting smaller or larger studios more. I mean, obviously when it comes to small studios, there are concerns when you don't have an HR department, uh, when you have, you know, a, a smaller reporting structure where maybe just one person is the, the final decider. And if that person is abusive, it can cause issues for everyone in the company, but at larger studios, you know, sometimes it's systematic. Uh, mm. sometimes these these issues and these culture problems are so deep that it, it affects the entire company. And, you know, we've seen that not even HR departments are some are effective sometimes at, at preventing these kinds of systematic issues and abuses. So when you look at what has happened over, you know, recent years, um, you know, and I think a lot of companies have been um, getting a little bit of unwanted spotlight in, in that regard. Um, what would you say are the things that you absolutely have to do if you are the owner or the founder or the CEO of a company um, and, and, and when you talk to your leadership team uh, to make sure that you minimize anything like that as, as much as possible? Are there certain principles, certain guidelines that you would recommend uh, everybody applies um, in their own companies? Yes, of course. I think that having anti-harassment, anti-discrimination policies, having a clear way to escalate issues is great. Having, you know, training to prevent both direct harassment and things like micro microaggressions are all really important. But I think it's also important to be proactive with your culture development. It is so easy when you have, you know, a group of friends who come together and make a studio to just sort of let that culture naturally evolve based on that friendship. But as that studio is growing, you have to understand that there might be some issues with that culture as it grows to a 200 person to a 2000 person studio. And you need to be proactive about what is appropriate. Yeah. You know, we, we, we've seen um, companies where the, you know, friendly banter <laughs> when magnified by more and more employees becomes really, really disgusting harassment because that culture was okay when it's, you know, 20 people who are all really close friends, but when you have 2000 people and not, they don't connect on that same level and, you know, they're coming from different backgrounds and different experiences, it becomes, you know, harassment. It becomes strange abuse. Yeah. So an, an argument that I sometimes come across and that I've always having a hard time dealing with is when people say, well, you know, this person has contributed so much to the game. It is so important. Their skills are vital and so on. So, you know, uh, they might not be ha having the best character or something, but, uh, you know, they're so important for the team. It always uh, really makes me angry. So what, what do you say to people uh, that actually use that argument? I would say that if your company is so dependent on a single person to be successful, your company won't be successful in the long run. Yeah. I mean, any company should be prepared to lose anyone for any reason, whether they are you know, mauled by a pack of wolves or because they have proven themselves to be a toxic abuser. And that it is important to ensure that those skill sets that that 
creativity, that that inspiration, that freedom to be creative, to learn, to grow is being nurtured throughout the entire company. If that person is, you know, such a brilliant designer, such a brilliant artist, they should also be a brilliant mentor and be able to rise others up to that level as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that one. What can you do in a, in a company from your point of view to um, increase the level of psychological safety that people feel? I mean, obviously, when you want to come forward with, with issues, uh, you want to make sure that uh, you're not you know punished for anything you say there. And, and obviously, it involves the leads and so on. So what are your experiences, your insights from talking to developers and, and, uh, and publishers and other companies in the industry? What do they do in order to uh, make this possible so employees actually feel like they can be vulnerable and, and, and feel safe? I know that different companies have approached this in different ways. Again, I think being very explicit about the process and explicit about how any information in that process is going to be handled is really key into giving people safety and the feelings that they can be open with the issues that they are facing. I think it's important to openly discuss that mental health issues are, are health issues and they should be treated in the same manner that, you know, other health issues are approached. If a company is having a hard time setting this up or they don't have, you know, the right people within the organization to provide support for this, there are a lot of resources out there to provide that support. The IGDA works very often with Take This, which is also a nonprofit organization that provides mental health support to gamers and game developers. So you could go to an organization like Take This and they'll come in and they'll give a session, uh, like a you know a training session and help set up that culture and that process within your organization. Yeah, at the Embracer Group that I'm part of, we've recently partnered with uh, Safe in Our World, which is a similar organization, uh, and I think they have uh, tremendous experience with, uh, you know, providing guidelines and uh, and give advice to um, people that are, uh, you know, companies that that have employees struggling with, um, you know, mental health issues, and and really provide a framework um, for them to um, to get the help, you know, that people need. And uh, I think it's great that there are more organizations like this. That's that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, and we actually, I think we have a um, session with um, some representatives from that organization. I don't want to do uh, a commercial for them here, but uh, I think, uh, like you said, Take This and the Safe in Our World, those are all important uh, organizations, and uh, hopefully we can shed some more light on the work they do because I, I really believe it's vital in, in times like these. Absolutely. So talking about times like these, I mean, obviously, uh, with the pandemic that's going on, and you mentioned a couple other things that have happened since the beginning of the year. Um, there's, there's this, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this Facebook meme where, you know, a guy is like summarizing to his friend who woke up in 2020 now, like what has happened since the beginning of the year. And he's like, oh, you won't believe there's been wildfires killing like, you know, millions of animals. And then, and then we have a pandemic and we, so all, all those things happening. So, um, but, but with everybody now being a, a little less physically connected, I would say. Um, what's the impact that you see on topics like mental health and, um, you know, toxic behavior and so on? Do you think it's, it's does it help? Does it make it worse? Um, what are your thoughts? I personally feel like it has helped because I've heard across many teams that they've had to be more explicit about their discussions of their current health and and challenges that they're facing. While there's a lot of sort of innate social interactions and bonding that happen in a studio where people are meeting in person day to day, when people are forced to you know, interact only through explicit calls, people feel like they have to be more explicit in their inquiries to people's healths and situations. And... I think that in this time of turmoil, people have found that it is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to say, I'm having a terrible day. My toddler just will not leave me alone. They just yeah. really want me to make them a peanut butter sandwich. And all I'm hearing all day is this. And it's just making it hard to focus on work. And I found that people are being a lot more empathetic. Yeah. You know, it's easy when you're in the grind of commute, work, commute, try to get some bonding time and sleep, commute, 
to you know get into the 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 steps and sort of forget about all of the individuals. But now when we're separated, it's it's actually a lot easier, I think, to recognize the individuals that you interact with in your lives and to be concerned about the issues that they're facing. When it comes to the, you know, harassment within our industry, this is a good time to take a step back and evaluate it, right? Because so much harassment tends to be either in a strange, passive way that is casually done in between meetings or uh, after work, that those interactions aren't happening now. And if there is any issues, they have to be more explicit because they either come through emails or on a call. And all almost, <laughs> almost any call can be recorded these days. So I think that it is letting people take a step back from those situations, the problematic ones, and be able to reevaluate what they're experiencing and to be able to give some distance in between problematic people and the people that they are causing issues to. What kind of um, changes in, in leadership are required in order to make this work? Uh, I mean, obviously, you yourself in your role at IGDA and also at Stumbling Cat will have some, some challenges in staying in touch with people. Um, so what, what do you think um, people need to learn in order to be able to, you know, provide good, good leadership in times like these? So the IGDA statement on the recent harassment revelations was had included in it that change needs to happen from the top down. Obviously, everyone should be participating in this process and helping combat industry abuse and harassment. But true change has to come from the top. And it doesn't have to come from the pe current people at the top either. You know, I want to see more people with diverse backgrounds, more people with understanding of empathy and the issues that others are facing being put in leadership positions. When it comes to those who are currently in leadership positions, I think that there's a lot of training and consideration that can be done. In fact, the IGDA is currently working on leadership training materials to help improve the consideration of business ethics, of worker health, of mental health, of diversity and inclusion, because we understand that when you have empowered leaders who understand these issues, they can help bring change throughout their entire organization and nip these problems in the bud. Yeah. No, I would I would really agree that that's uh, what I've seen in you know recent years is is the the approach that works the best. So when you um, when you talk about those resources that you're building within IGDA, and I know that you organize in, in, in chapters obviously around the world, how do you bring this information to the individual chapters? And are you encouraging um, all kind of different initiatives uh, all over the globe? And then and do they then feed back into what you can provide centrally? Maybe you can explain a little bit more how you work as an organization in that light. Yeah, of course. Let me first give an overview for those who might not know. So the IGDA is an international organization, and we have over 100 chapters around the world that serve their local communities, as well as 35 special interest groups that support developers across affinities and disciplines. So everything from quality assurance and game design to women in games and LGBTQ plus developers. When it comes to the creation of these kinds of materials and resources, the general process is, you know, a, a material is suggested, a resource is suggested, and that suggestion is either from headquarters or, or gets up to headquarters. At that point, we work on creating an outline and discussing with people what they think that that resource should be. And once we have that outline, we reach out to the relevant chapters or special interest groups that would have specialties that affect it. So for example, right now, uh, we actually just created an outline for inclusive game design and how to make sure that your game design is inclusive and inspires diversity within your game and the community that supports it. Right. 
So with that outline, now we're reaching out to all of our diversity chapters, and we're also reaching out to our, cha- our, our diversity special interest groups, and we're also reaching out to our game design special interest group and the other special interest groups that are relevant to this kind of document. From there, we ensure that everyone works collaboratively on this process, probably with headquarters on this one leading that development, and then it'll go into a review process and finally be published. When we publish that article, then we will share that information with all of the chapters and special interest groups within our organization in many ways. Right now, we have a really, really strong online community. So we do have our Discord group. We also have a weekly newsletter. So if anyone is interested in what the IGDA is doing and what is happening with the game development industry at large, they can sign up for free online. And these kinds of resources will be published there and promoted. And then we'll probably have some online discussions. We have lots of webinars. And This will be a continuously developing document, too. I mean, I don't think that we're going to be perfect with inclusive game design in this first draft, and I don't think that it'll be 100% relevant and accurate for the next 10 years. So this is an ongoing process. Yeah, I think it's it's probably never going to be perfect, but I think it's very important (laughs) to make, uh, you know, steps in the right direction and uh, and, and help people out with that. So the people working in the chapters, uh, are they all volunteers, or do you have people that that IGDA employs full-time in making all of this possible? So the IGDA, when it comes down to it, is a fairly small organization. We only charge $60 US a a year for membership in our association, which is about 10 times or more lower than most association costs. So all of our chapter leaders are currently volunteers. We are doing everything to support we can to support them though. We're working on leadership materials and other support networks for those leaders so that they're not only being empowered to be the best chapter and special interest group leaders possible, but so that they are given tools where they can help uplift their own career and skill set as well. We recently launched both a regional coordinators program and a SIG coordinators program to also give further structure and support for these chapters and special interest groups and their leadership teams to ensure that they are getting the attention and support that they need to be successful. So prior to this uh, COVID-19 mess, <laughs> were you uh, encouraging uh, chapter leads or chapters in general to meet quite often? Was there a lot of uh, you know, networking going on uh, that now moved to Discord? Or uh, are, they, are you operating a little more decentralized and, and people were pretty much organizing their, uh, their meetups maybe more locally? So all of the local chapters were having their individual local meetings. Uh, Some chapters had meetings multiple times a month. Some of them had once a month. Some of them had a few times a year. Whatever worked best for them in their community is what we supported. The special interest groups have their own sets of meetings and approaches. Some have more active discussions. Our Women in Games group, for example, has their own active online community, but doesn't do as many events. Whereas our Games Accessibility Special Interest Group and our Game Research and User Experience Special Interest Group have their own conferences and they do, you know, big you know, hundreds of attendee conferences, and those tend to be their main events. Yeah, that that particular one I know actually because I worked with uh, a UX lead before in my previous company, and he was, uh, um, you know, speaking at one of those conferences. And I think pretty much all of the last ones. So uh, I, I kind of know these uh, this format, and I think it's really great uh, that something like this has been put together, even though it's now obviously more difficult with the with the pandemic situation. And talking about this for a moment, I mean, obviously there's so many things that are impacted by that. Um, we, we touched on networking a little bit um are are you missing this right now are you missing like uh, physical conferences where you go and meet people and talk to people and have meaningful interaction or you know are you a little more laid back and say oh well you know we can do this online it's it's fine and and obviously there's regulations that prevent people from meeting up in uh, in big groups right now but i was just wondering what your personal thoughts are on this 
No, my personal thoughts is I'm devastated. I, I'm <laughs> okay. a very, very social person. Yeah. I've been extremely active in the game industry for the last almost decade now. And I miss seeing my friends. I miss connecting with my friends. And I was really looking forward to being able to support more developers in person through the IGDA as well. Uh, I'm also kind of kicking myself because I had I joined as the executive director just over a year ago. And... At the time when I had just joined, there was a lot of opportunities for me to travel, uh, to go to Gamescom, Devcom, uh, to go to uh, Belgium for something and, and other things like that. And at the time I said, oh, this is all really great, but I really want to get ramped up well into this position and to make sure the organization is in a good state before I start trying to, to do yeah. travel. So I turned down all of the conferences until one conference <laughs> in February. I went to DICE in Las Vegas yeah. and then everything shut down. And, you know, I, I, I'm really sad because I was supposed to be traveling a lot and I was making big plans uh, for, for all of this travel. Uh, and and we, you know, obviously that's been canceled and we've had to pivot significantly as well. Um, this is not an easy time to be a nonprofit. This is certainly not an easy time to be a nonprofit that raises funds through giving mentor cafes and networking events and other opportunities at physical conferences. And it's a hard time seeing the developers who are disadvantaged suffer. Uh, certainly pub developers and publishers who have games out that are selling like hotcakes right now while everyone's trapped at home are doing fine. But there's a lot of indie developers. There's a lot of developers who were in the pitching stage where they really needed these online or these in-person events to do right. the networking and to bring in the, the contracts and funds in order to keep their studio yeah, I can. First of all, I can totally relate to the travel plans, and you know, I was traveling quite a bit. The last conference I wanted to go to with, uh, it was uh, South by Southwest in Austin in March, and I was flying there actually a week prior to the event being uh, being planned. And uh, you know, and then when I landed in Houston like five minutes before, uh, you know, it was announced that they that they had canceled it. So that was my last event experience like for this for this year. And um, and then the second thing I want, wanted to mention, you kind of answered my question before I even asked it, like in in terms of um, what kind of uh, or what group within the games industry is affected the most by COVID um, because I've, I've seen that uh, especially smaller developers indies that are trying to pitch their new title uh, small teams that try to get somebody to finance their project um, are struggling quite a bit because um, you know it, it seems to me and I just wanted to uh, to you know uh, run this by you and <laughs> let you confirm it pretty much it seems to me that uh, you know publishers that are um, maybe not as established yet and that uh, that they are being a little more cautious in terms of signing new things that might be a little more risky and so on so it feels like uh, it's a, you have the same sentiment right now or you you have the same observations in the industry right yes I, I think that um Publishers were uh, certainly more hesitant, especially during the start of the recession. I think right now, everyone's not completely sure about the economic stability. So fundraising is still in a difficult state. And, you know, pitching your game is already more difficult enough when you're doing it in person with people that you can truly connect with trying to figure out how to do that online in this new strange world of <laughs> fully online networking particularly yeah. with organizations who haven't done it significantly in the past is is difficult and the IGDA is actually working on two pitch events right now uh three actually three different pitch events that are going to be coming up so we can better support indie developers who are trying to make those pitches. We also have an IGDA indie showcase that's coming up at uh, soon. I actually, I don't have the exact date or I would say it. Um, and we launched a games showcase where any IGDA member can promote their Kickstarter or early access launch or launch of their game to help get more eyes on it. Cool. We're really concerned about the reduced visibility that a lot of these games are getting due to the lack of conferences, due to the lack of having people and reporters playing them on the show floor and the lack of connecting with publishers in person. 
Yeah, it's also something we've been trying to support somehow at DEFCOM. We've been, uh, just the other day, I was uh, attending a, a pitch session, like kind of a speed pitching session uh, by Canadian indie developers. And I think it was great because you get, like within five minutes per project, you get like a good insight into what they're uh, working on right now. And I think there's three of those events. So all of these initiatives, I think, are very, very important right now, uh, especially because, um, you know, big publishers, like we said before, um, they have their, their developer contacts, you know, of course they talk to these guys they might have done a project together and then they do the follow-up they do a sequel they do something else with them but um you know if you're a smaller indie and you're looking to get in touch and then like you said it's it's very hard um uh, for uh, for you to actually be uh connected or get connected to the publishers so all those initiatives i think are very very important and uh you know um matchmaking uh tools at online conferences help quite a bit as well i think uh, in order to get people uh connected there even if it's not the the real thing I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's um, there's ever a going back to the way it was before the pandemic for the industry? Um, do, do you think uh, conferences are going to be the same like they used to be? Are they going to stay more digital? Are there going to be a new formats um, from, from your point of view that um, will dominate the future of events or, or this industry in general? I think when it comes to specifically the game development industry, we are going to continue to see a lot of online events. I think that at least many events are going to have more strong online components simply because that infrastructure is being built out. And that is, I think, to an advantage for the industry because one of the benefits of all of these events moving online is it means that more people can attend them, more people in emerging markets, more people from places where they might not have the funds to travel are going to be able to attend online events. So I think that that's going to be an improvement. However, I think that there is a strong desire to return to those in-person events because, Absolutely. I mean, when it comes down to it, the game industry is full of extremely passionate people, extremely passionate, extremely nerdy, extremely friendly people. That's one of the reasons why I love this industry so much and why I've done so much to support it is because going to a conference and seeing people and getting hugs and sharing stories and staying up late playing games while talking about business is absolutely an amazing and inspiring experience. There hasn't been a single time I've gone to a conference or convention and came home and not felt inspired. If every time I go to one, it renews me and I get more no motivation. I might catch a, a con cold and feel sick for a week <laughs> or two afterwards, but I still feel refreshed when I go to those in-person events. And I think many, many people feel that way. So I think that they're going to come back in force when the world allows for it. I absolutely feel the same. And the cold you sometimes get is totally worth it usually. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, it's funny. I mean, next week, uh, Gamescom uh, is starting in a digital format this year. Uh, very interesting for us, obviously, to see how that's going to go. And I mean, Defcom already started. Gamescom is is following, and uh, it feels very strange somehow. Uh, even though we put everything into making it um, an interesting event in the online space, usually that time of the year, you know, I travel to Cologne, and uh, there's like almost four hundred thousand people uh, at at Gamescom throughout all these days. It's crazy in a positive way. You know, all those connections that you were talking about all those experiences are usually the, one of the highlights of every year uh, if you work in this uh, in this industry uh, and it's still hard to think about the fact that this is not going to happen this year and um, you know people are not only we from the industry but also the players that usually go there and then enjoy you know waiting in line for their favorite game to be played for like 20 minutes 25 minutes uh, and, and they stand there for like five hours or so uh, it's 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 crazy but it shows the dedication and the passion that that people have in our industry and uh and I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to miss this. Absolutely. I mean, I've been uh, attending regular video game conferences and conventions since I was in high school. I was attending BlizzCon back in the day. Certainly not as a developer, but it's something that's almost addictive. You know, being around people, being around such inspiration and art and creativity and enthusiasm. I really and truly miss it. I'm actually, I'm feeling a heartache now just talking about it. And I, I really can't wait for it to return. 
Well, I guess an achievement unlock. <laughs> I gave you a heartache talking about a topic you like the conferences now. But uh, it, I, I totally relate. I wanted to have those conferences uh, back again, like desperately. And uh, even though I got to say, like, sometimes the reduced amount of traveling um, is uh, is also not too bad. You know, there's, uh, I think in the end, it's it's about a mix of, um, you know, online formats and, and, and in-person formats. Uh, I think in, you know, if you are very connected in the industry, then sometimes, uh, you know, you, you you travel quite a bit, and uh, you know, uh, especially if you have family, have a, uh, a daughter like I do, then it's it's nice to also have some time to to cool down now. Um, but I really want to get out and, and see people again, definitely. Yeah. So you, um, when we did the prep call, you mentioned something that I found interesting. Um, uh, you were talking about a game development uh, crisis conference series that you launched in April. Um, would you mind talking about this a little bit, um, so um, people know what you've done there, and maybe you know they can learn something from from that uh, going forward? Yeah, absolutely. At the start of this pandemic, when all of the different countries and areas started becoming locked down we realized that it was going to have a big impact on developers. You know, obviously GDC was canceled, um, which threw a lot of developers um, into to complications there. Not only heartache, uh, but financial issues as well. And we wanted to do what we could to, to support developers through this time of crisis. So we worked with Take This to create the Game Development Crisis Conference and Webinar Series. And it was a series of first webinar talks and then a full day conference that supported game developers by covering subjects from self-care and mental health through managing remote teams, through mitigating technical challenges and difficulties of working remotely. And all of these talks were extremely powerful and helpful and inspiring to developers who were suddenly put in this new situation. And I think it's important to note that it's not just smaller teams that are impacted by this. In fact, larger teams, uh, AAA studios, have the hardest time suddenly moving to remote uh, because their infrastructures are so heavily based in their physical location, especially if they're de developing for consoles. Yeah, I can definitely so confirm that. I mean, in the in the group <laughs> I'm working for right now under under Kutch Media, we have uh, like six internal studios, and uh, most of them work on AAA titles with like 150 to 200 people. Uh, some of them working on next gen uh, stuff and then obviously there's like all those requirements also legal requirements sometimes where like for deaf kids and stuff and then they had to move back home and there's there needs to be uh, strong connection internet connections at home and and then they weren't allowed to take the hardware with them at first at least so uh it was it was having a major impact on development um for those teams and i'm glad that now it's been sorted out but i'm i'm pretty sure and also what i know from talks with others in the industry that uh you know those um uh, people working on uh, have been severely affected, but I'm glad that you know other um, uh, companies and, and uh, also first parties like Sony and Microsoft and so on that providing the, the hardware they need have been um, you know recently more lenient regarding uh, the the use of their hardware and uh, uh, allowed people to some extent to be a little more flexible, uh, which is good. Yeah, I, I think it's a huge improvement, and one thing that's also being impacted is is just communication. We had a number of talks on communication because it's really important to understand that suddenly working remotely and communicating remotely changes not only the direct methods of communication, but the passive methods of communication. When you're in an open office studio, which I know almost all game developers are, are in these days, it allows you to pick up a lot of passive information about the state of the project and what's going on in different teams. And now when you're working remotely, you have to be much more explicit about that information because it's not just innately gathered by being around the office. We found that the Game Development Crisis Conference was really, really effective. It received wonderful feedback and we saw almost 15,000 unique viewers. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's a really good initiative for, uh, you know, for, for helping people um, through these times. And uh, I'm, I'm, I think it's great that you did that. 
Thank you. And for everyone who is listening, all of those talks are available for free on the IGDA YouTube channel. So you are more than welcome to go browse those talks and listen to ones that you think would be inspiring and helpful to you and your team. And by the way, I wanted to mention that earlier that I think a good starting point for everything about the IGDA would be the website IGDA.org, uh, I assume. Uh, where, yes, you know, yeah, IGDA.org. If, you, if, you, if, you, if you're looking for you know the number one place to stop by for all the resources, I think that's it's really good um, to go there. Renee, there's one thing that I wanted to do in the beginning of, uh, of our talk, but then kind of uh, forgot about it a little bit, but I thought it was uh, still pretty cool to share it with the audience. It's, it's a little bit of your, your story into the industry. You know, when we talked a while ago to prep for this recording, you, and you shared a little bit, uh, you know, your first steps into uh, the games industry and uh, what made you feel passionate about it. And I, I really want our, our listeners to at least have that little bit of insight into your, your personal uh, story there as well. So if you don't mind, it would be great if you could... Uh, uh, talk a bit about uh, you know the beginnings and how you got to this industry. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I guess I will preface this by my story is strange and complex. So please bear with me here. Um, as a child, I absolutely completely fell in love with game development. I found it to be, or sorry, games, video games in general. I found them to be inspiring, transformative experiences. Though I actually grew up on first-person shooters. So I was playing Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, Duke Nukem 3D when I was six, four to six. All right, all right. I still remember my, gra um, my grandma gave me Mortal Kombat 3, which is a game that at that point was like, uh, definitely censored, well, more like not legal in, in Germany. I probably shouldn't say that here on the recording. But, uh, <laughs> you know, she kind of gave it to me for my birthday when I was not old enough to play it. But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, and I, I enjoyed them. And then I played the first Half-Life. And that was sort of an experience to me where I went, oh my gosh, video games aren't just video games. Video games can be compelling, immersive stories and experiences. And if I wasn't already in love with them, my, my passion for video games was yet but renewed. I didn't consider game development as a career path. I didn't even really register as game development as a career path, though, until my senior year of college. At which point in time, I met game developers and went, oh my gosh, you're people. You're people like me. I can be a game developer. Oh no, I just got my degree in engineering with a focus in mechanical engineering and project management. Um, so I joined the biotech industry after that, uh, starting as a system and design engineer. And then I taught myself programming and moved over to be a software development engineer. I started volunteering for indie teams on the side. I began working as a producer for a small game studio who then lost uh, their lead server developer. So I took over server development and leading the uh, production of the engineering team. And then, um, uh, truthfully, I got fired from, from my biotech job. Um, I was fired by a man who came onto the team, uh, who re replaced the, the previous CEO, and told me that because I didn't have a degree in computer science, despite the fact that my um, development of our full stack uh, HIPAA compliant server was provably better than the previous versions um he decided to let me go uh he also just because he didn't have the a other degree? female uh, he also forced the other woman who was on the team uh out of the company as well oh so it, that was a a very interesting experience that could have its own podcast so i will i will s s skip over that all right. so I, I, I'm here if you want to time, do a follow-up at some point. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> at that point in time, I was, you know, two and a half years out of college with mostly biotech uh, so uh, system development experience and a passion for game development. So I started applying to different jobs within the game industry and not receiving any in-person interviews. I was getting rejected at the initial review stage. Um and I found that really disheartening, but I decided I wanted to push forward. And I heard that one of the best things you could do, and this is one of the best things if you're listening and not yet in the game industry, is make a portfolio. So I said, okay, I'll make a portfolio. I didn't know if I wanted to be a producer, a game designer, or an engineer. 
So I decided since game design was the one I was not sure about, because I hadn't really done much game design, that I would just design a game. And I took inspiration from the fact that I found it frustrating to be told that you're a hero in a story, but then to be praised and given experience and gold and rewards for killing every fluffy bunny you see. Like, sure, at the start, kill some fluffy bunnies, get some You don't, you don't kill fur. bunnies. No, you don't. It's, it's just not okay. You know? <laughs> I have two but, bunnies here at home. That's why it's, I got to say it's not okay to kill bunnies. I, well, I mean, it's weird in games. You're like, you're a hero. Go yeah. slaughter everything that you see. Yeah. And there's benefits to it. So I, I decided I'd want to make a game where that's not the case. And so I thought, okay, well, how do you make you not want to kill everything, but sometimes kill some things? And I thought, okay, resource management. It should cost to attack things. And I thought, what's the easy way to do that? Uh, make your potions cost, or make your spells cost things. And then spells became potions. And I'm like, okay, I will design a game where you have to craft potions. Um, just for my portfolio. This is not intended to be a multi-year project that, I, uh, uh, that I'm still working on. But Well, I guess that turned out a little differently, right? <laughs> it did turn out a little differently. So I started working on this game that I was just calling Potions at the time. And I was going to all sorts of in-person events. I was living in Seattle at the time, which has an extremely healthy and vibrant game community. It has a very active IGDA Seattle chapter. It has a very active Seattle Indies group as well. And I started getting a lot of interest in my game design idea. And I started then getting a lot of interest in my own skills and abilities as a developer. Turns out, Making a portfolio truly does help you get uh, roles within the industry. So I, I, right before I launched my Kickstarter, I believe, I actually went up to the head of IGDA Seattle and said, these are all the problems that I think IGDA Seattle has, and these are the things you should work on fixing uh, because of them. And they said, that's great. You should come to our next board meeting. Uh, and... Shortly after, I joined the IGDA Seattle board uh, because I was outspoken about my, my, my desire to improve the organization. Then I launched a Kickstarter for Potions of Curious Tale, is the name I decided on, which ended up being successful successful in the last 15 minutes. So oh, I had wow. actually <laughs> written that morning, like my... We weren't successful statements, like through tears. I had sort of... Uh, Felt like there was no way we were going to cross the finish line. But I got wonderful help from the people at Imagos Films. And we had a pain drive where we were eating hot peppers on stream when we were hitting fundraising marks. Uh, and so at the end of the Kickstarter campaign, I was <laughs> chowing down habaneros through, through tears <laughs> and, and celebrating. Um, from there... Uh, you know, the Kickstarter raised $64,000, which is a good amount for helping hire contractors and not a good amount if you're right. trying to live on it. Uh, so I started taking contracts on the side while continuing to work with the IGDA. And I've had all sorts of strange contracts uh, since then and full-time employment because I, I finally decided that it's actually a lot easier to just work full-time employment uh, and spend time on the side than it is to try to juggle a bunch of contracts. The overhead of doing contracting can be quite tiring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, two, year, two and a half years after I joined the board of IGDA Seattle, I... I ran in the election for the international board and was selected two, year, two and a half years after that. Our executive director, Jen McLean, stepped down and I applied to be the executive director so I could even better support game developers because throughout my career, I had received absolutely so much support and I wanted to give back. So... Um, I used all sorts of strange skill sets that I got on my way here as a games journalist and as a marketing coordinator for Xbox and as a technical project manager and technical product manager. And it has accumulated in me having a very weird skill set that has been able to be used to the benefit of the IGDA and the game industry at whole over this last year. 
Well, I really love the story. <laughs> it's it's really cool, and it's, it's a great showcase for uh, you know if you believe in uh, you know making a difference and uh, if you believe in entering an industry that you can certainly do it. I mean, it's definitely not the uh, the normal story out there, but I mean, who wants that? You know, everybody wants to have a different uh, uh, path into into this industry, and that's the beauty of our industry. I think that uh, you know we have a lot of people that uh, came into it like or similar to, to what you were describing, you know, they made their own game and they, they didn't know they would end up as the executive director of the IGDA at some point, you know, <laughs> it was kind of similar for me as well. And I, I was not working in games. I was a passionate gamer from like, like when I was very young, uh, similar to yourself. And, uh, and at some point I decided, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, be in a boring industry. I, I want to get in games. And I had this, uh, you know, maybe too big ego at that point, like, oh, I'm going to be a producer and everybody's going to want me. And I, you know, wrote applications for being a producer in the games industry. And of course, everybody was like, who's that guy? And I mean, we, we don't know him, you know, so uh, I got turned down like uh, immediately by pretty much everybody I applied to. And uh, and then I, I started as a community manager at some point. Somebody gave me a chance. And that's kind of my point. You know, I think it is so important. Important if you get a chance by people uh, in the industry to uh, to make a difference and to and, and, and your voice is heard at some point uh, and then you get to a point where you can actually give back uh, then the most important thing is to to do unto others what, what has been done on, uh, for you and and that's what that's been my my motto and I can hear it from you as well that you now in the role you are you can really help the industry make a difference and give back a little bit of what uh, you know how people helped you to uh, to become part of this so I, I re- I'm really glad there's stories like yours um, that we can share absolutely we all need to lift each other up that's what makes this industry such a wonderful thing to be a part of and that's why we have such wonderful passionate people it's not just that video games are really rad i almost swore there (laughs) but it's because it's full of supportive creative wonderful people and yes we have our problems but i'm glad that we're addressing them and i'm glad that i get to be part of this because i find it to be such an inspiring passionate medium full of wonderful people well, I'm glad that you are a part of this, and I think uh, it's a great closing statement. So, Renee, I want to thank you so much for the time uh, you gave me today in, in this uh, episode. I'm, I'm pretty sure that our listeners are going to enjoy it as much as I uh, did recording it with you. Uh, obviously, uh, you guys uh, think about um, reaching out to IGDA. Uh, if you uh, have any questions about the topics that we talked about today, there's uh, all kinds of chapters around the world. Uh, and uh, again, Renee, I want to thank you uh, so much um, for your time uh, and to hope that we can do a follow-up at some point. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to a DevCom podcast produced by Sven Fossing. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.